1: from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. On today's episode, we have Paul Lushenko, who is a prolific soldier scholar and uh, one of the leading voices and leading thinkers on uh, drone warfare and its legitimacy in armed conflict today, as well as in the future. So today we have uh, Paul Lushenko from the U.S. Army War College with us uh, to talk about a lot of different things here, but we're gonna focus primarily on uh, drones and the impact of AI and ML on uh, drone warfare, remote warfare. But uh, Paul, you just finished up a PhD at Cornell and you're off to uh, a new job and a new career field. So please give us an update on what you're currently doing and how that fits with your work as a scholar.
0: Yeah, Amos. Thanks, uh, first of all, for having me on your program. Uh, I think it's commendable that you're pushing forward the the debate on these important issues to include emerging technology and the implications for the shifting character of war. So as you noted, I just graduated from Cornell University um, with a PhD in international relations as the principal subfield. But within that subfield, I focused on emerging technologies and drones or unmanned aerial vehicles at that and the implications for public opinion to include approval, support, and perceptions of legitimacy and what that means for the sustainability of operations abroad and really focusing on high-end, exquisite advanced drones such as the MQ-9 Reaper or its predecessor, the MQ-1 Predator. I recently transitioned to the Army War College, which constitutes a return on investment for the Army, which afforded me the time, space, and cash. uh, frankly, to go to Cornell to uh, to receive a PhD. And so here uh, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, I teach the core curriculum, um, military strategy and campaigning, which affords JPME two accreditation for students, which is to say, uh, joint education, which is mandated by the J7, the joint staff J7 derived from Goldwater Nichols, Circa uh, the Iran hostage uh, issue, and we can talk about what that means for professional military education. But then, on top of that, I teach two new electives. Um, one born from the body of my research on emerging tech and war, titled the same, "Emerging Tech and War," uh, and then the other on special operations forces. Because in addition to my teaching requirements as a faculty instructor, I also serve as the director of special operations. And so I'm the person that can provide advice to faculty advice to students uh, plug into uh, US Army Special Operations Command or JSOC or SOCOM as a functional combatant command uh, to really understand what great power competition and indeed, um, God forbid war means for the employment of SOF uh, in this strategic context.
1: So what you're saying is you're, uh, you're you're taking it pretty easy since uh, having having finished your PhD. Well, I, uh, I I think it's kind of tongue in cheek, but uh, but on the other hand, it, it is true that there is a
0: perspective that if one were to come to the war colleges and to teach or to West Point or the like, that, that you that you would take a knee, and, and nothing is further away from the truth. And and I actually think, and I had to prepare to talk about this, but I think it's actually important to reinforce for your um, audience, your, your listenership here who probably spans the gamut of, of ranks, grades, and experience, mm-hmm. um, that it's, that it's nothing, uh, like, like that. Um, the, the military, the army is getting their pound of flesh from me. And I, and I think this sort of assignment really, um, is in the vein of the new chief of staff of the army's emphasis on professional development. Uh, which is to say reading and writing and so I feel very yeah. fortunate uh, to come to the war college although culturally speaking uh, some people kind of look doubtful on it frankly
1: yeah yeah that's uh, I always think that it's uh, if you have an opportunity uh, to to give back and go to pme and and work it's uh, invaluable you you learn a lot too just on your own end um, you know like when i was when I was a captain post command um, I went to to able and spent two years there commanding again oh, yeah. but you know training armor lieutenants and you know it was uh going out and, and you know qaq seeing uh the things you taught in the classroom in a field environment was a very very educational experience for myself so i can see how that's uh on your in there you know slightly different slightly different audience but at the same time uh, many of the same dynamics at play the uh so moving on from that uh you've written that's a lot right. about the legality of drones and drone warfare and remote warfare, which probably would, we we, we would probably benefit from an explanation on that idea. But what are some of the major misconceptions you see in in the conflict and defense studies communities regarding the legality of drones and drone warfare? Yeah, I think this is a foundational
0: but crucial question because on the one hand, drone warfare is often conflated with remote warfare. And as you know from your doctoral studies uh, Mm -hmm. as well, the two two are separate um, but related. Um, And on the other hand, it seems to me that there's been an oversimplification of what in fact drone warfare is. Uh, And this is notwithstanding that everybody and anybody seems to be a drone warfare expert these days. I mean, my father, uh, who's 75, retired as a police officer, knows nothing about drones now knows everything about drones because they seem to be so (laughs) prolific on social media and on TV. So what is drone warfare and what are the legal implications of this pattern of conflict? And so as I take a look at drone warfare, there's a variety of misconceptions that scholars even have adopted. One is they often reify drone warfare to targeted killing, which is to say the use of a aerial delivered mission munition fired from a drone platform to kill an ostensibly high value target. So think number one or two in a network for the Islamic State or Al Qaeda uh, or uh, another sort of uh, violent extremist organization. Mm -hmm. And having said that, the second sort of misconception here is that drone warfare is used only in terms of irregular warfare to include especially counterterrorism, and counterinsurgency. Thirdly is we often essentialize drone warfare to the platform. So this is a fetishizing of a broader pattern of violence to the Reaper, to the Predator, to the Barakatar, which is manufactured by Turkey, to the commercially available easy weaponized Chinese DJI and other dual-use capabilities. We also think that this is only a lethal practice, although we know that drones, especially by way of what we've seen in Nagorakakaba in Ukraine and elsewhere, they can aid, they can watch just as easily uh, as they uh, can kill. And so having contextualized what the practice um, is often conceived as, one of the original contributions I make to the literature and did the discourse on drone warfare is to understand this pattern of violence as a function of different observable, which also means they're empirically study, uh, able to study rather um, attributes. And so the use and constraint of drone warfare when brought together allows us to understand broader patterns that are emerging for this practice globally. And use consists of two faces. On the one hand, a tactic, like the use of ammunition um, on a patrol, for instance, Mm -hmm. and also as a veritable strategy, uh, which is to say pursuant to broader political and military objectives at the sort of theater, strategic or national level. So the strikes that we saw conducted in Yemen, in Pakistan and other non declarative operations would be akin to the use of drones to achieve uh, broader strategic aims. And on the other hand, our constraints and the variation of constraints mostly is in terms of unilaterally imposed constraints by a state. So like the near certainty standard or reasonable certainty standard that various presidents have adopted since 2001, mm-hmm. which is to say again, we're going to prove these strikes in the event of no civilian casualty, or we've attempted to more proportionally conduct these operations, uh, in other words, mitigate uh, collateral damage. And then finally, uh, the other sort of constraint, which is most well-known and I've written about as well, is multilateral constraints. So the approval by either regional bodies, the African Union, for instance, in Western Mm -hmm. uh, Africa, or the United Nations. And so when you bring together variation of use and constraint you get different patterns of drone warfare. The one that intuitively makes sense for us as Americans, and indeed for us as army officers, is the so-called over-the-horizon strikes that the United States conducts. Mm -hmm. And so we do these where we want, when we want, how we want, against whatever threat network to achieve military and political objectives. And that is in stark contrast to another pattern of drone warfare adopted by a great power. In fact, the only other great power besides the United States that conducts these operations, which is France, and they like a very judici- judicious pattern. So they want to use drones as another tactic uh, mm-hmm. on the battlefield, and only with UN approval. And so to back that in that framework of use and constraint with various patterns that are evolving globally. Into your question about legality, for the longest time, for the last twenty plus years we've understood the legality of drone warfare in terms of what we call in just war tradition, who's had bellum, right? So the um, just cause, the proper authority, um, the last resort to go to war, as well as sovereignty or territorial integrity being the chief uh, norm of international relations. And when you breach, Uh, sovereignty, and you don't achieve ostensibly the sort of who's ed bellum protocol I've just laid out, then they're illegal by way of international humanitarian law, also known as the law of armed conflict. So Mm -hmm. that may have been true for the United States for 20 plus years with these strikes in Yemen. Somalia and Pakistan, uh, at least by way of international humanitarian law, not to mention the domestic considerations from our own congressional approval, but no longer does that sort of pattern of drone warfare characterize how most states are conducting strikes. Most Mm -hmm. states are conducting strikes within the context of an ongoing uh, war or political violence within their borders. And so Ukraine's a good example of the former, uh, Ethiopia is a good example of the latter. And if that's the case, then we don't really wrinkle international humanitarian law considerations like we uh, have seen with the United States. Mm-hmm. Here, the real concerns uh, it must become are these capa- capabilities used proportionally uh, to the threat. Uh, Are countries and militaries therein attempting to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants? And is there real necessity for political and military objectives for the use of these capabilities? And so finally, I'd say uh, to put a fine point on it, legality has evolved as well as patterns of drone warfare. In fact, they're mutually constitutive, right? So Mm -hmm. the legality is a direct reflection of how countries are using and how they're constraining strikes. And for the most part, we're not hearing the sort of cries of illegality internationally or globally, uh, as we did for the United States with these countries that are adopting the capability.
1: You recently published a book called Drones and Global Order, Implications of Remote Warfare for International Society uh, that you and some colleagues put together. What are some of the important things that people uh, should take away from that book and that you took away from that book, putting it together?
0: Yeah, Amos, thanks so much for for bringing this up. Um, As we've talked about before, this book has been around for about a year, year and a half. uh, And it was really a testament to an excellent editorial team that we had with Bill Maley, Professor Emeritus from the Australian National University, who is a world renowned expert um, on AFPAC issues. And then a colleague who's a senior lecturer at UNSW, University of New South Wales in Sydney. And so this book um, is really an attempt at theory building to provide a framework for policymakers, practitioners, and scholars to grapple with the implications of this notion of drone warfare for the legitimacy of global order. And global order, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't state that it is a contestable term. It's um, hard to actually understand if it, if it exists in practice or not, but we yeah. talk about it like it does. So right. the so-called liberal uh, international order, which apparently is under siege uh, in Eastern Europe right now with um, sort of Russian aggression in uh, Ukraine. So this book unfolds in three parts. Uh, The first part of the book, what we attempt to do is articulate the competing realist, uh, constructivist um, liberal, so international relations theory, um, considerations of why countries would choose to use uh, this capability in the first place, because it's unclear if power and security are really the sole benchmarks to justify countries' adoption of the capability in the first place. We know that status, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, is important for countries. And so we wrestle with this sort of social constructivist thought in the first part of the book as well. In part two, we uh, apply an original framework um, to understand global order to drone warfare and tear apart global order um, based upon um, the use of drones and how they relate to different pillars of global order. So we define global order is a function of intersubjectively shared norms and institutions that when bought into by countries can actually reduce the potential for conflict and encourage common goals among countries. So, that includes peace and security, of course. And so, international order becomes a function of international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict. Mm -hmm. It becomes a function of sovereignty. It becomes a function, of um, the diffusion of um, military capabilities. And so in part three um, of the book, after talking in terms of these several different pillars of global order and what drones mean for the durability of global order by way of these pillars, we um, investigate how evolving proliferation of drones, mostly the sort of high-end, exquisite, armed and network variety Mm -hmm. uh, can best be managed by international society. And then the tension between doing so in terms of order, as well as justice, which becomes a recurring theme within especially British, uh, Australasia School of Thoughts on International Relations, what is known uh, as the English School. So having said that, I think that we generally in the book and our contributors, which is an array of very well-known uh, practice and experienced scholars, as well as practitioners, I think the three contributions we make are, are these. The first is we advanced a new way to think about drone warfare and the scholarship. And what we um, articulate this as is, is the fourth wave. And so if you take a look at these sort of recurring waves of literature. Uh, sort of a pithy, understandable uh, analogy uh, to understand the way that this literature emerges, yeah. you really get a focus first on on proliferation of drones, why they proliferate, why they don't, supply and demand considerations, uh, how effective or not are the drones, and then finally, uh, the normative implications of drones, which includes the legality that we talked about. And so we push the drone warfare literature, literature in a new direction to understand the higher order, international or global uh, implications. Second is we show and i alluded to this we show that mainstream thought on drones whether it's about power security or status frankly is inadequate to understand the proliferation and use of these capabilities and their implications for global order and so what we lobby for is an integration of these competing logics to understand why countries would adopt the capability in the first place. I have a separate article, uh, for instance, on presidents and the use of drone warfare that shows Mm -hmm. that a combination of social goals, uh, so protecting human rights, for instance, as well as national security, sort of a preeminent Uh, realist uh, consideration, often conmingle to drive even liberal or democratic presidents to use drones just the same as um, Republican or conservative presidents. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, we show that while drone warfare does reflect Coercion to stabilize global order. And of course, this threatens its perceived legitimacy or rightfulness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's actually more complicated than that. What we show is that drones can be used to uphold global order. Uh, and sovereignty is a great, great point. I mean, we're using, uh, the, the, uh, Ukraine is using drones rather. Uh, in that conflict with Russia to uphold their sovereignty, right? So on the one hand, we have cries of uh, breaching sovereignty, which is undermining global order. But on the other hand, we're seeing the use of these capabilities to uphold global order by way of territorial integrity. So I know that's a lot, but we're trying to drive the drone warfare literature to understand this capability in new and novel ways that we haven't so far.
1: That's uh you know those are those are really interesting points. Uh, I think that uh, the legality and LoAC clearly um, are are points that are often talked about as we think about drones, especially in the future. Uh, also the, the that idea that they uh, they assist in upholding global order. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my in my day job. Uh, Looking at the future of of armed conflict Uh, for the Army, one of the questions that continually comes up when we think about the use of drones and other uh, potentially autonomous systems or systems that can be autonomized in the future is the idea of trust. And so Mm -hmm. trust is an idea that continually comes up uh, when we discuss the future of drones. And then uh, specifically when we talk about the integration uh of ai so uh, artificial intelligence and then also machine learning and aware that those are two distinct things but they often get bunched together yeah um but with those two things becoming uh more plausible uh tools to make drones capable of autonomous operations in the future what does your research suggest about the role of trust human trust in the future as it relates to drone or remote uh, or remote warfare
0: yeah so another really important uh question and, and my research is going in, in this direction as well for a lot of reasons and potentially most importantly is because there's an assumption amos that our emerging warfighting concepts doctrines and modernization strategies um are, are predicated on human machine teaming uh, and yep. trust from service members um for these capabilities but yet we don't know empirically what factors and variation of factors actually shape trust and, and, and it's not as though senior military leaders whether it's general Rainey, whether it's uh major general retired mick ryan uh, whether it's general recently retired um mark milley it's not mm-hmm. as though they're not aware um, that this is an outstanding question, but no, but no one has studied this, um, directly. Yeah. And so what I'm doing in my research right now is adopting the use of survey experiments. And I'll put more meat on the bone here shortly, uh, mm-hmm. about what that looks like to understand, um, how different factors when they come together, uh, will shape attitudes of trust, which is a complex and multidimensional consideration. Um, and so it needs to be studied in sort of a rigorous, um, yeah. rigorous sort of way. And so I have two studies that are ongoing right now, uh, among the war colleges, um, students. So U S army war college and the Naval mm-hmm. war college, um, based upon access and based upon, I think, prestige of, of the, of the, universities there. One is on, um, how soldiers trust AI enabled technologies or partnership with AI. So human machine teaming. And yep. then the other is what AI and emerging capabilities mean for officers understanding the future trajectory of warfare. Because there's a whole lot of, and we're going to talk about this later on, there's a whole lot of misconception, hot takes, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, about how AI is going to change warfare and the implications for global order and global politics. And we got to be a little more sophisticated in what we're talking about. But nevertheless, what I'm studying right now is trust in AI. And here's what I find. I find um, that trust, um, in AI-enabled systems, is very complicated, uh, and it is really multidimensional, and it's really a function of the combination of different technical specifications, perceived effectiveness of the capability, and the regulatory oversight. And if you allow me, let me just briefly walk through uh, yeah. those three um, considerations. So, on the technical specifications, what I find is that officers at the rank of major through colonel or lieutenant commander through captain in the navy Mm -hmm. want these capabilities to be used non-lethally based upon a perceived lack of trust on balance and trust we have to define as really expectations of reliable performance given some shared goal right and so for the potential for uh Uh, air proneness or target misidentification, they want, they like, um, expect these capabilities to be used non-lethally. The other uh, feature of technical specification is the type of autonomy and precision. And so they want these capabilities, of course, to be Uh, Very precise, maximum level, high high precision, but they also want them not to be fully autonomous. Um, Military officers who are invested by our senior leaders to integrate these capabilities and formation at scale, want them to be less than fully autonomous, which I think is an important consideration because it goes back into the notion that autonomy provides us a competitive edge vis-a-vis our near-peer adversaries, that we could reduce the sensor to shooter timeline by applying effects faster than an adversary. I mean, the fact of the matter is officers at this level appreciate that argument, but still want the ability to authorize a strike, which means the capability at most is mixed initiative, uh, semi-autonomous, or you have humans on the loop, right? So that series of considerations brackets what I mean when I talk about technical specifications. Now, when you go into perceived effectiveness, this is very heartening for me as somebody who's kind of a closet war ethicist, international relations scholar, because you often hear, especially what's going on in Gaza and around uh, the world, even uh, mm-hmm. that militaries do not uh, support non-combatant immunity that, you know, damn be the consequences. Uh, military is a pursuit of politics by other means. Right. And so you see this very clearly um, with what's going on in Gaza right now on the one hand, israel has the right to defend itself but on the other hand it better do with no civilian casualties whatsoever so what i find um you know going into the conversation about perceived effectiveness for these capabilities is that military officers want to reduce collateral damage as much as they can especially civilian casualties but at the same time they want to increase force protection as much as they can and indeed this is the intended benefit of drones in the first place Right. Which is we're going to buy down the risk to our own forces and then reduce civilian casualties by applying precise effect. And yet they also want to have high contribution to mission accomplishment. Right. And so perceived effectiveness becomes a function of proportionality, force protection and then mission accomplishment. And then finally, uh, to wrap it all up. And this is really surprising to me is that officers at this level, and it may be because of how we've operated for the last 20 years during the so-called global war on terror Mm -hmm. um, with heightened sort of social media awareness, the increase of that. I I don't know, but what, what, what officers appreciate is regulation and not just domestic regulation, which is important. They want international regulation. Right. And so this ought to cause pause for consideration among critics of these capabilities that say that the way the United States especially is adopting ostensibly fully autonomous weapon system is creating norms that are bad, right? That are pernicious. The the reality is our officers who, again, are going to be generals and admirals in the future, Mm -hmm. they want to use these capabilities judiciously and they want them to be governed by some international legal code. Yep. And so when you bring together technical specifications like I've explained and perceived effectiveness as I've done, and then the regulation, what you get is a really tightly calibrated set of considerations that drive trust for AI that have important follow-on uh, implications for policy, for research and for modernization.
1: Uh, one of the things that I kept thinking about was the younger generation as they come forward that trust for them with AI, one would have to assume would be greater. Um, however, you know, if, if they're not getting those, and that's one of the things you always hear too, you know, when the younger generation comes along like the guys and gals in ROTC now, they'll be, you know, far more uh, trusting of AI in the future, but that assumes that they're getting more touches with AI type things now, you know, and if mm-hmm. they're not, or if it's a marginal, you know, difference between that and the, the, the senior field grade officers that you're dealing with, uh, maybe it's not, you know the next generation but it's a generation down the road so it's an interesting uh and it's an interesting problem and one that i don't think has as you've mentioned an easy solution uh let's take a step back for a moment and uh take a step back from the the focus on drones and ai uh and again if you happen to dive back into that answering this question that's that's totally fine but in your assessment as you look across uh, social media and you see things discussed on the news and you hear students talking. In class and in the hallways there at uh, Carlisle Barracks, what is the the worst hot take that you see or hear uh, in the community of interest regarding war and warfare today?
0: Yeah, it's, it probably goes to the title of your podcast. You know, just stepping back and taking a look at warfare, generally speaking. Before I yeah. do that, what, what I wanted to, if I could, uh, to close up the, the previous conversation on AI is to, to talk about what I think are important um, implications. If I could, real quick, yeah, right? Yeah, and so no, I think that there. Yeah, I, I think there's some real important modernization policy and then education implications for the findings I have um, uh, for AI. Um, you know, and one is that we often um, talk about AI as a boogeyman. Yep. Um, but when we take a look at what's happening, not just in Gaza at this point, but also Ukraine and, and, and elsewhere, what we're seeing, and like Steve Biddell talks about recently in Foreign Affairs, is continuity in warfare uh, versus a wholesale revolution. And so, war as you and I would appreciate, but I'm not sure most observers who don't have the education or the experience would, is really a function of a class of of wills. It's intensely human. It's conditioned by political objectives. And this Mm -hmm. is the nature of warfare, which I think is immutable that people like HR McMaster talk about. And and this is an important consideration as we consider what AI is and is it, and what it can do or what it can't do. I mean, I've heard AI characterized as a seismic shift to global order is more important than the onset of nuclear weapons, and I'm not sure at this point if there's really a there there, and yeah. it's hard for me to understand as a political scientist the causal mechanisms that people ad- identify either explicitly or implicitly to, to mm-hmm. drive this assessment. So I think we got to st- take a step back and not be as uh, hyperbolic about what AI is uh, for warfare going forward. So, so the killer uh, robot, the killer robots aren't coming, is what you're saying. Well, I'm not going to say that because I don't want to be so declarative. But but what I do believe is that people have conflated the potentiality for yeah. a killer robot with the extent of the capability we have right now. I mean, we do not have fully autonomous weapon systems in our arsenal at this point. And for the foreseeable future, as long as I'm a lieutenant colonel, I'll probably retire as a lieutenant colonel, um, you know, that, you know, we're, we're not going to see fully autonomous weapon systems um, identified as such. It's not to say they couldn't come. And yeah. even then, it's unclear to me given the policy that the officers want to have in place in our own du- directives from the department of defense, if we would ever weaponize these capabilities in a fully autonomous mode. Now, I think what could potentially drive us in that direction if it, is if we're in an existential war with China, yep. Russia, and our adversaries do that. But I think as a first uh, principle of policy, uh, I don't see it go in that direction. So besides the, the modernization, uh, implication, I think there's implications uh, for research going forward. I mean, my study or a set of studies, is one attempt, although the first attempt that provides the first experimental evidence for AI and trust, we need to do more of that, right? So we need more testing, more experimentation for these novel capabilities that drive trust in human machine teaming that will also be integrated back into AFC or elsewhere uh, to align concepts with doctrine uh, Mm -hmm. and policy. And then finally, as I think we have to revamp our professional military education to instruct officers on the merits and limits of AI. And so the assumption is, as we talked about before, there's a generational gap in attitudes of trust. Yep. Uh, in other words, we have officers at senior levels that may be, um, look at, at, at AI dubiously, but then we have so-called digital natives with junior officers. That is an assumption. Yep. You know, there's some experimentation that show that it, it may be correct, but we've not actually asked junior officers, uh, and more importantly, those at the service academies and our Reserve Officer Training Corps, so ROTC at universities, what they think. And I have a unique um, I'm in a unique position. Indeed, I think I have a more obligation to do so. And so we're on the precipice of fielding a survey experiment to the population of ROTC students across the country to show the first evidence and how they trust AI enabled system and partnering with those. And we can then compare or contrast that to what I find. For senior officers, right? Okay. okay, I just wanted to close that up because yeah, you know the, yeah. no, the implications of my study. Yeah, the, the implications of my study are are, are quite far reaching, yeah. and we get we get a lot of we get a lot of um, publications and studies within our higher level peer reviewed journals on public opinion for especially drones, and then we kind of use a convenient sample of national security professionals, broadly defined, who we think are a proxy. For the yeah. military. But the fact of the matter is no one has tapped into attitudes of the military. And we're doing that for the first time here at the War College. And I think it's an important contribution. Now, what about the so-called worst hot takes on war? I I've talked about a couple of them, but let me, yeah. let me just repeat. The first is, I don't think we have a good sense of what drone warfare is or is not. And so in my... Dissertation, I study this, uh, which is a definition of drone warfare as using constraint and variation of these two attributes. And and I do the same in a forthcoming book, uh, which I'll talk about here momentarily. The other is, secondly, the worst hot take is what are the implications for AI enabled technologies on the future character of warfare? If you take a look at sort of um populist i'll call them populist um uh, analysts like paul shari from the center of news american security security yeah. and others you know there's this notion that ai is going to result in so-called um uh centauria war centaur warfare and i'm not sure if you've heard of this term before no, it, it's no. a, yeah so it's, it's interesting right so yeah. a centaur is a, a greek uh it's from greek mythology it's a yeah. creature and it emphasizes sort of uh, human control of, of an animal, of a horse. So half human, half a uh, horse. Mm-hmm. You have the head of a human, the, the body of a horse. And so we get some indication from our thought leaders who aren't empiricists, right? So Paul Shari and others aren't really studying this stuff uh, with survey experiments and with data. I mean, they're right. intuiting, which is fine. But the best intuition from, from Paul is that we're going to move towards uh, so-called centaur warfare, which means you have tactical decision-making with human oversight. And I actually think that this is important to understand as a potential pattern, but probably again, oversimplifies the potential direction of of warfare. So if if you bear with me, here's Mm -hmm. where I think that AI could potentially take warfare in in the future. And some of this stuff is testable and some of it's not because it seems pretty fanciful, uh, almost like sci-fi. So we have Centaur warfare, which is a function of tactical decision-making and human oversight. The second consideration is flipping that on its head and and saying literally tactical decision-making with machine oversight. And so Hmm. there are some war ethicists like Adam Hinchke uh, from the Netherlands, a colleague of mine from Australia, who wrote a co-authored article recently in parameters that talks about this notion of minotaur warfare. And so it's not a centaur, it's a minotaur. Hmm. And that means you have a animal controlling human um, body right. In this case, we just substitute that for a machine controlling humans. Yeah. And as far-fetched as that looks, we do know we have capability in our systems that are totally controlled by human. I mean, machines at this point. So, the CRAM that you and I yep. know from uh, protection our fort operating bases in some automated uh, air defense missile uh, counter mortar capability. But you could see that Minotaur warfare could characterize human or uh, machine control of humans on a patrol of a constellation of warships potentially, and even fighter jets in the air as we're working through our Air Force partners with, with the loyal wingman, which is a fully autonomous sort of capability. Yeah. There are two other ways to think about the future evolution of warfare by way of AI. One is this notion of AI general or singleton. You've, you've probably have heard of this, and this basically collapses um, both oversight and decision-making at the strategic level into a machine, right? And so a strategic decision-making with machine oversight. And, and this is the real fanciful sort of notion mm-hmm. because this almost presupposes some sort of like sentience from uh, a being, right? Uh, yeah. But some like Ben Zwiebelton, um, if I'm not bastardizing his name from uh, from <laughs> Sam's, like he, he's yeah. talked about this, right? And, yeah. then the, and then the final notion is simply just human oversight of capability that provides strategic decision-making. This is mosaic warfare as I've called Mm -hmm. it and others have called it. It could be considered uh, hyper warfare and we see implications or indications of this rather um, right now. And so real-time threat forecasting is the use of AI to connect the dots that would provide a threat estimate, either hostile intent or hostile act. It it may have been used, uh, likely was used to predict the impending invasion by Russia of Ukraine We can -hmm. see that companies um, like Palantir or Scale AI are studying how to use um, AI for threat forecasting um, as well, but also to identify feasible, suitable and acceptable courses of action options as it were, best military advice uh, at the strategic level. And then finally is tailoring logistics to achieve exactly what General Milley wanted to when he left, which is uh, resilient logistics uh, Mm -hmm. for the new joint warfighting concept. And so what I'm telling you is that we have talked about the implications of AI, but no one has really, besides Paul, and even then it's not potentially as complicated as it needs to be. No one's really talked about what the future patterns of drone warfare could be. I'm talking drone warfare, but AI-enabled warfare could be. And when you bring together variation of decision-making levels, so tactical and strategic, and the type of control, human and machine, you get different patterns of AI-enabled warfare that allow us to understand how this could go in the future um and then to close out and i won't say too much about this because um i've talked a lot it seems but uh the uh the implications of uh public perceptions of legitimacy for drone warfare we we often Mm -hmm. study attitudes especially among the public in terms of approval and support because of an assumption that this is how most people think but yet our senior leaders in the military and politically uh, and even those um, in academia will talk about how important legitimacy is for the the, the durability of operations abroad. And legitimacy, yep. in this point, is like you know it's empirical, it's pragmatic, it's 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 rightfulness, it's it's a it's appropriateness, uh, it's acceptable. And mm-hmm. so, in my uh, forthcoming book with a co-author um, with Routledge, we have a book again. It's called. Um, Evaluating uh, public perceptions, uh, the legitimacy of drone warfare, we talk about legitimacy as a key dependent variable that can be studied empirically. And I think Mm -hmm. that if we're going to criticize the capability for not being legitimate, we actually ought to adopt uh, sort of replicable, generalizable Uh, methods that attempt to prove to the extent we can that it's legitimate or not by way of what people think. And so in sum, I think we have to be more clear about what drone warfare is or is not. I think we have to be a little bit more sophisticated and rigorous about the implications of AI for war going forward. And I think we have to continue to push the methodological envelope on how we understand attitudes in terms of these emerging capabilities. And I happen to do that uh, by way of legitimacy.
1: Yeah, the... uh... Out of all that, the two things that stuck in my mind the most uh, were the Centaurian warfare and the Minotaur warfare. Those are uh, those are some interesting ideas. It took me a moment to place that in my mind when you said it and started yep. explaining it, and then I was like, ah, okay, I get it, I understand. Um, kind of, it it, it it almost makes the the whole thing even creepier too.
0: <laughs> too well, it I'm does. The
1: is- intent, you know, the terminology though. Certainly, well, does. it does,
0: and so what? So you know, in addition to the the study I've talked at length about, which is attitudes of trust for AI enabled systems, there's a separate study I have right now to attempt to understand how how officers at the senior level think about the trajectory of warfare. And what Mm -hmm. I find, and I test this typology of centaur warfare, minotaur warfare, AI general, and mosaic warfare. What I find, first of all, is that uh, officers distrust all of them. Yeah, But they trust minotaur warfare the least. Now think about that. That's machine control Yep. Uh, or or not as much. They, they distrust it. Not as much is probably a better way to say it. Hmm. If you think about that, that's machine control of humans. Yep. And the reason I was, I was thinking about this going through the data, Amos, the reason I think this may be the case is because all of our warfighting concepts and what we're telling ourselves, the narrative and how we're legitimating uh, how we're spending money. I mean, show me the money or show your strategy is yeah. predicated on human machine teaming. And so I think that we've conditioned officers into this assumption that these machine uh, controlled capabilities that are partnering with humans can shorten the sensor to shooter timeline. And that may in fact be correct, but the real irony in all of the data I look at is what I call the trust paradox. What I find is that attitudes of support and trust for these AI systems are quite different. They don't co-vary, they deviate. So officers (laughs) will support the uptake of AI enabled systems that create opportunities for human machine teaming, but they don't trust them as much. (laughs) (laughs) So think about that. So it's almost like It's crazy. So it's like we're resigned to accept these capabilities because, well, we think this is going to be the case or this is what we're told. And by the way, I'm not stepping away from the fact that we are inculturated with the chain of command and we follow orders. I got that. But if we want to design capabilities that are to maximize combat performance, like General Rainey and others have talked about, and I think it's a good approach, we better be pretty clear about how how to build the capability and how to test and how to experiment, how to partner with it to achieve just that.
1: Yeah. No, that's, uh, that makes perfect sense. And I think on that, uh, we'll go ahead and close out. Uh, before, uh, before we break here, anything that you'd like to push or plug or uh, you know, advertise, anything you're working on, anything outside of the book that I've already mentioned that you'd like to, to highlight? so i think the book's a good
0: starting point it's a theory building exercise so those who want a causal estimate confidence intervals whatever aren't going to get the statistics but you will get the statistics um in an accessible way i think uh in a forthcoming book and i'll send you the link for that again evaluating public perceptions the legitimacy of drone warfare and then finally I'm really intent on publishing one way or another these two studies, because I think it's gonna provide Mm -hmm. again, the first experimental evidence of how we trust these systems as military officers to have real application for policy, research and modernization. And I'll send you the links uh, to those studies as well.
1: All right. Well, Paul, that's it. Thank you uh, for your time today. Thank you for uh, (laughs) uh, putting up with the the bad internet connection that we had to suffer through today. And I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Amos. appreciate it.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods,